Well, good morning. My name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm the pastor here at Covenant Church and one of the elders with the great privilege of serving the church as we go along the mission that Nick just uh, gave out, to know Jesus and make him known. And uh, today we're going to be in uh, week three of our current sermon series called Here. And every year in November, uh, we sort of take an outward look on the world where we uh, throughout the year can, can at times get really deep into uh, introspection and what is it about me that God is trying to do and how can I improve and be better and do better and all these things. And so in November, we take a really strategic pivot and we say that as you are about to be uh, in the midst of friends and family as Thanksgiving and Christmas are coming, as you are about to be in the most social situations crammed into the smallest amount of time humanly possible, what we want to do is give you eyes to see the world like Jesus saw it, to have an outward approach to the world, to have an outreach approach to the world. And so every year in November, um, since I was here anyway, we have been uh, focusing on what does it mean to be a church of the 167, which is to say that there's an hour here you spend uh, during the week, and then there's 167 others. And so our job is to equip you and challenge you and inspire you to go out and make those other 167 hours a week as powerful and practically amazing as possible. So this week, what I had intended to preach about is we are in this series called Here, which is about your here, your context every single moment is your here, and how do you impact that? What I intended to preach about today was actually about generosity and giving. Sort of just circled on my calendar as a a pastor, you have to occasionally touch on the subject of people's money, and then you know that on Monday you get the email that says, Dear Pastor, I enjoyed your sermon. We appreciate your services so much, but why did you have to talk about my money? And, and you receive that email with great joy and you say, I'm so sorry, but that's what Jesus talks about. And so every so often we come back around to this concept of generosity and giving because Jesus did. And so this was sort of that season for me. And I said, well, this will probably be the Sunday I need to do it. And the closer I got to it, to your great relief, I said, you know what? I don't think that's what today is about at all. <laughs> We're actually going to go to the root of generosity, And so you can still send me emails, but I would prefer they say, thank you so much for avoiding talking about my money, even though I feel like kind of around the edge, you may have been anyway, but anyway, here's a thousand dollars. So I just felt generous. (laughs) Today's about love. The root of generosity, the root of all of this is love. And so what we're going to talk about, using uh, one of the most famous passages in Scripture, a passage that you've heard, I'm surely read at weddings before, we're going to talk about how love exposes us, how love invites us, and then how love liberates us. So uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll put it up here on the screens. You can read along with me. The Apostle Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels... But do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I have nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, 
what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And then verse 13, he says this, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So we begin by talking about how love exposes us, how love exposes us. People like checklists. I don't know if you know this. We're getting to the season where even some of our favorite people are employing checklists. Some of them even check it twice to find out if you're good or bad. Checklists are a big thing. If you are in my house and you ever hear my wife say, hey, can we do like a housework day, like a fix-it-up, you know, handyman sort of day? First, I'll ask if she's actually talking to me because she's the handyman and I'm not so much. But then I'll say, I'll do anything, but I need a list. I just, I got to have the list. I, the ch- checking it off makes me feel good about myself. I'm, I'm feeling great about that. I don't care what you put on the list. If I can't check it off for real, I'll fake it and then check it off, whatever. We like lists. We knew a young lady who had a list, uh, and you don't have to raise your hand, but I know there are some people in the room who have a list of the qualifications, attributes, and characteristics of their future spouse. They keep a list. We knew a young lady that had a list that was 108 items long. Legit, got to be 6'3 or above, and you're like, oh gosh. <laughs> Two years ago, we went to this wedding, and I met him for the first time, and he put his hand out to say hello, and I said, hold on just a minute, and I kind of went around him, and I looked for a battery pack, and I smelled him, and it's a real guy. Hello, 108, huh? And he was like, what are you talking about? I said, oh gosh, he doesn't know about the list. <laughs> we like the list. It tells us what's required of us. We like clear behavioral guidelines. It's what sports does for people. It it creates a set of rules and boundaries to which everyone has the same boundary. Everybody has the same rules. We all follow the same rules until until your favorite team has a little yellow flag thrown out and someone calls pass interference and you go, how is that pass interference? And then you throw something at your television because you cannot believe that they interpreted the rules that way. And they go to replay and you got to replay it 15 times and the people that are paid to know what this is, they don't know what it is. I don't know. I guess it could go either way. It's inconclusive. And then all of sports fails us. Is that a block or a charge? I don't know. We want clear guidelines. It makes us feel good. We want standardized competencies. If you have a job that has an annualized bonus based on your performance, it's good to know what that performance is. If you're in sales, you want to know what the sales number is to get the bonus. No matter what you do, widgets you produce, people you lead, you need a metric so you know if you've hit the mark. That's just what we like. If I told you that I got a bonus every year if I make 80% of available hospital visits to our membership, you would A, think that's strange, and B, you would look at me really funny if I showed up at the hospital when you were there. You'd be like, are you here because you love me or because you want the bonus? And I'd be like, can it be both, right? (laughs) Let's pray. I don't get a a bonus for hospital (laughs) visits. When we talk about the evidence of faith, we ask the question, does someone bear fruit? Where's the evidence? And here in this passage, this most famous passage, Paul doesn't offer us a checklist. He offers us a confrontation of sorts. He says, you can do a whole lot of things. You can move mountains. 
you can prophesy, you can preach, but if you lack love, it's, it's nothing. It's worthless. And then he follows that up, not by telling you what you should be or what you should do. He doesn't say you should be patient and you should be kind. Instead, he confronts us and he goes, but listen to what love is, which the implication is because you are not quite there yet. He nudges us away from our behavioral evidence culture, which is tricky because two people can have the exact same behavior and only one can be based in love and we would never know it. Someone can reach a standardized competency, make all their hospital visits, but if it isn't based in love, then what was it really worth? It falls flat. Not only does Paul refuse to offer us a checklist, but more than that, he gives us this definition of love in verse 7. And it doesn't look like a definition that we're used to, but it's a definition. He says it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. And then the beginning of verse number 8, love never fails. That's a hard thing to meet up with. Because as good as you think you are, as hard as you want to try, I don't know anybody who's ever been able to say, always I do that, and never have I failed. The challenge for us is that we are self-focused. Whether we like to admit it or not, we're self-focused people. Self-focused people uh, love, they love what they can get out of something. We love what we can get from another. In marketing, there's a, kind of an acronym that's been made into its own word. It's called WIFM, W-I-I-F-M, what's in it for me? And great marketers know that the key to selling anything is defining the WIFM for somebody and then making sure they know what it is. So when you're watching TV and it's 1 a.m. and you see the Ronco electric food dehydrator on the television, you go, I don't know if I need to dehydrate all my apples and steaks, but it looks pretty good. They know that what's really in it for you is a great value to make you feel smart. And so they go, but wait, there's more. And you go, wait, there's more. Not only can I have eight rows of apple chips, but I can make my own jerky and what? What could it be? And then they say, if you buy right now, you get a second Ronco electric food dehydrator for free, to which you say, gosh, they've answered the question. What's in it for me? It's two for the price of one. I'd be a dummy not to. So I'm going to order six of them. Not a good decision, but they defined it for you. What's in it for me? When you go to buy a car, you walk in with your what's in it for me. I want this sort of car, this sort of color. I want a good deal. I want a good interest rate. Whatever your qualifications are. What we don't often realize is the person selling the car also has a whiff them they're bringing, don't they? They're wanting a certain commission, which means their motivation is to sell for as high as they can, and your motivation is to get as low as you can. And this is how our society works, is both of our whiff come together, and we usually find some sort of stasis. This doesn't really work to be loving in your used car purchase, does it? If you walked in and you were like, listen, listen, I, I know you think I have an agenda here, but I'm, I'm holy for you. I want to always love you and persevere and hope for you. And I'm here for you. And the salesman first would um, take a step back and wonder what you're up to. And then you'd go, okay, what does that mean? And you'd go, I want you to sell me your worst car for the highest price. And they'd never believe you. Any more than if you walked in and you said, Hey, I'm here to buy a car. And they go, you know what? I had an epiphany last night and I realized that Jesus was all about other people and I want to be about other people, not for me and my motivations. And so you pick any car you want. It's free. It's yours. It's on me today. You, would, you, you laugh. It's never going to happen. Why? Because they have an interest. What's in it for them? They give you a free car. They lose their job. Not very good. You give them all of your money for the clunker. Not good either. 
We have these motivations. We have these, these things in us that are driving us, the self-focused piece of us. And Paul is holding out a higher standard of love. He's confronting us with true and pure love, a love that is holy for another. Instead of what's in it for me, Paul says there is one who says, I am here for you. The old story that's told from the Middle Ages about a poor farmer. The farmer walks out to his field one day, and he discovers that he's grown just the, the most incredible carrot. It's enormous. He looks at it, he holds it, it's just this prize. In his whole life, he never imagined being so rich as having this incredible giant carrot. What will I do with it? So the poor farmer says, you know, the best thing to do is to take it to the king. So he makes a day's journey, he finds his way to the king, walks into the king, finds audience with the king, and comes before the king and kneels and he says, your highness, your majesty, I've never grown something so incredible and I never will again for you, for your esteem. And the king is a little bit miffed, but kind of feels sweet, earnest joy in this moment. The farmer bows his head, doesn't make eye contact, begins to wake, make his way out of the castle. And before he leaves the king's throne room, the king says, hey, double his land. Double his land. To which the man rejoices and he leaves the whole journey home rejoicing that his act of selfless generosity has been rewarded. Now the story makes its rounds throughout the villages surrounding the castle. A nobleman hears of the story. He raises horses. And he says, well, if a carrot gets you double your land, he goes into his stables and he finds his biggest, best horse and he brings the horse out of the stable. He walks it up to the castle. He comes into the king's throne room with his greatest horse and he goes, your, your highness, your majesty, this is the greatest horse I've ever produced and I will never produce a better one. And it's for you, for your esteem. To which the king says, you disgust me. And the nobleman is taken aback. He says, for a carrot, you double someone's land. I bring you my best horse. I disgust you. What do you mean? To which the king says, the farmer gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. And he dismissed him. The farmer gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. You came in for you. You were giving that for you. How do you know if your love is based in woofum? What's in it for me? If your generosity doesn't yield gratitude... If your generosity doesn't yield respect or privilege or approval, if your service or your gifts or your efforts go unrecognized and you feel that, that ever so slight tinge of resentment when you don't get that thanks, you were given for you, serving for you. Like a nobleman with his horse, you were practicing what I've come to call boomerang generosity. Boomerang generosity. Giving something with the expectation of getting something back. You throw that out there, knowing full well that your generosity is going to come right back. Got it. I'm going to give you this because I'm sure it's going to benefit me when it comes back around. Giving to get isn't generous. That's selfish. My wife had a really long day at work a month or so ago. 12 hours out with people and the house was a little bit of a, a disaster when she left. Things are just kind of strewn wherever they're strewn, and it's one of those days. It was like her day to clean, but she got called to work, and so she's going to work. And I looked at our girls, 10 and 7, and I was like, we got this. Watch this. We're going we're gonna to tackle this. And she's going to come home and be so impressed. 
And so I did what you do with kids when you're trying to get them to help you clean is I gave them a busy work that didn't actually help but just got them out of the way. And I was like, you guys go alphabetize the cupboards and I'll be in here actually working. And so then I get to it. I'm like, the laundry's done and the dishes are done and the floors are vacuumed. I got even the perfect vacuum lines in it. And I said, nobody walk on the carpet. And then we're going through, everything's getting clean. I look around and I'm like, this is insane. She's going to come home. She's going to love this. It's going to bless her. And then there's a little piece of me that goes, but what if she's so tired? What if she's so tired she doesn't even notice? What if she just comes in and just collapses in a chair and I don't get any credit? (laughs) And then an angel came to me and said, listen, your wife has a really strong sense of smell and pine saw is a very distinct smell. And so if you would just mop the floor... You don't even have to do a good job. Just make sure it's, just spill some pine salt somewhere. <laughs> Mop the floor. I can't, so is it, I, don't, I don't know how you know it's clean. It just, I just did. It smells good. We go sit back down. I said, everybody look casual. <laughs> sit on the couch. No big deal. Just watching TV. Nothing happening here. No big deal. She walks in. I'm waiting for it. There it is. Guys, you did that for me. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just in here preparing a foot bath. No big deal. What are you, what are you talking about, though? Tell me more about what. What is it? You, you mopped. You've never mopped. Me? That old thing? Please. Please. Is that pine saw? I didn't even know what that was. I just kind of spilled it in your bed, too, just in case. Um, what was that? Was that love? Mostly. But there was some boomerang generosity in there, wasn't it? I got to do this so I make sure I get the credit on the back end because that fills my cup, those words of affirmation. I need those. If I can't guarantee I'm going to get them, I'm going to find a way to kind of give them back to myself. So I mop for me, if you're honest. It's not binary. It's not either yes or no. There's varying degrees of this stuff. But there are aspects of my service that day that were ultimately designed to benefit me. It's boomerang generosity. If you give to get something back, the gift was for you all along. If you give to get something back, the gift was for you all along. What we are longing for most deeply, the reason we give this way, is we are desperate for love, for unconditional love. And so this love that Paul talks about, it exposes us in our need for that. It also invites us. Paul invites us to see that the only person who has ever shown pure and perfect love, the only person who's ever truly lived holy for another is described in this passage. This love is, love is. It's not prideful. It's not self-seeking. It always, always, always perseveres. It never fails. Without condition, it protects. Without condition, it hopes. Without condition, it perseveres. Without condition, it trusts. Paul is saying, look at Jesus. What did he have to gain from us? He's God. You cannot enhance him. You cannot give him anything. You cannot bring him something. You cannot help him. He's fully sufficient in himself. This is high theology. If Jesus was just a man, there are people that, ah, he's just a man. If Jesus is just a man, he might have needed adoration or glory. But because he's fully man and fully God, he doesn't need that at all. Other people say, well, Jesus was just God. So there wasn't really any trust or vulnerability or or endurance required. He, was, he already knew where this was going. He was just God. 
But that can't be because he's fully human. And because he was fully human, he had to trust and he had to persevere and he had to endure and feel pain. This is why Jesus' love is the only unconditional perfect love because he didn't need it and he gave it anyway. So the question becomes, how do we find it? How do we have that in our own lives? Where do we see that? And I point you back to verse 6 where it says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And this is, if you read this, this passage, this is usually the throwaway verse. The people go, that seems nice. That would look good on a card or a coffee mug, but I don't really, whatever. You can even flip it and go, truth, truth doesn't rejoice in evil, but it delights in love. And you go, oh, see, just play with the words. It's just sort of that word sandwich thing. You just put some good words together and people go, oh. I think this is sort of the linchpin of the whole thing. The, the commentators are often confused. Tim Keller, I was reading something he had written about this, and he said commentators, Greek commentators, are often confused about this verse because what it, what it literally means is love sings along with the truth, which is, is a strange thing. Love sings along with the truth. What does that mean? You know those songs you like where you know the lyrics? And then there's songs that you love, and it seems like the lyrics know you. Where you sort of own them, and then you come to realize that song owns you. It just has you in this season, or it has you in that emotion, or it has you in that place, and it just has you locked down. And you know them inside and out, but they seem to know you better. That's the love that Paul is talking about. The the, the love that gets us past the behavioral list past conditional love and boomerang generosity, that this is a love that is, it's about learning to sing like Jesus. Learning to sing like Jesus. It's a response to the beauty of the gospel that Jesus loved you so much that he willingly lost the love of the Father on the cross and took punishment and shame for no benefit of his own. That's the gospel. And when that love is real in you, your life sings that truth. Your song begins to sound like Jesus' song. Your generosity begins to sound like Jesus' generosity. Your joy isn't in the glory of, of receiving, but in the joy of giving. You're not out for God's blessing, but simply his holiness. You don't want his presence. You just want his presence. Your relationships aren't about manipulating or manufacturing love because you have the fullness of perfect love already in you through Jesus. And that's when you know that you're singing the song of Christ, that you're rejoicing with the truth. You are one in the same. That you're on the same line, you're on the same note, that the harmony has become two people in the same melody. What song does your life sing? I would say the song of your life reveals the love of your heart. The song of your life reveals the love of your heart, and Paul is inviting us into the song of perfect love. This love that exposes and invites and then liberates us. Because until you allow the grace of Jesus to liberate you, until you rest in his song and his grace fully, until you are free from the need for approval or affirmation, you will never love people with unconditional love until you are away from the need for someone else's affirmation and approval, until I'm over the idea that if my wife doesn't thank me, part of me is missing. 
I can never love her unconditionally the way that Christ loved me. It's only when you can look at someone and say, I don't need your approval anymore, that you begin to love them for who they are and not what they do for you. Until you recognize there's nothing you can do to enhance God, there's nothing you can offer him, there's nothing you can do to help him. Only then do you begin to appreciate God's presence instead of his material blessings in your life. Because those who are defined by radical love are liberated to live with radical generosity. Those whose lives are defined by radical love in the person of Jesus are then liberated to live with radical generosity. And I am not talking about your money. It's your life. Love leads us to radical generosity. Mark 12 says this. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where offerings were put in and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Set the scene for you. Imagine the temple, the treasury is right outside, and Jesus is with his disciples. They're sitting maybe in the shade up against a wall, and they're 20, 30 feet from where people are dropping off their offerings. And he's just sitting there watching him, and his disciples are looking at each other like, what are we doing here? And Jesus says, keep watching. Just keep watching. And a man comes forward with his great wealth and his heavy money sack, and he goes, that's not it. Keep watching. And then another one comes with this mega grain offering, and all their wealth is pouring out. And they go, Jesus, what are we looking for? He goes, shh, 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 shh. Keep watching. Here it comes. Then comes the widow with her couple copper coins, and she drops them in. No great applause. If anything, they're mad that she's holding up the line. And Jesus says, that's the one. That's it, right there. That's what you need to see. The disciples have to look at each other and be like, what is he talking about? For years, I thought this passage was about math. I thought it was about percentages. That the wealthy gave their their large amounts, but it was only a small percentage, a 1% of their, their total. So shame on them. And then she came and gave all she had. She gave her 100%. So because her percentage was more than their percentage, because math, that made her more righteous. God must love her more. We make this passage about the percentage. And that's not it at all. The nuance here matters. Offerings were public and observable. Hence, Jesus sitting back watching who's putting what into the treasury. This is a dog and pony show where you come and you bring your wealth so that all might see. There's social currency being traded here. Jesus is freely noting the size of people's gifts as they come. And he wasn't offering a commentary on the size. Something entirely different was happening. Her gift wasn't better because it was a higher percentage. Her gift was better because she stood to gain nothing from it. That everyone else who dropped their mega donation got the wealth and the status and the power. They got everything they wanted when everybody else saw them put their large amount in. Ooh. It grew them in some way. And for her to put her little bit in did nothing for her except irritate the people behind her in line. The others gained status and righteousness. Their wealth bought respect and power. Her meager offering earned her nothing, which is the surest sign that her offering was one of pure love. Her love of God freed her to give all of herself for no personal gain at all. 
The widow's might is not about how much money you're supposed to give. The widow's might is Jesus looking at a poor old crippled woman, dropping off her two copper coins and going, that's me. I'm about to do that for you. I will give all of myself 100% for no benefit of my own. And in the days to come, you'll look up and you'll go, he gained nothing from this. There's no status, no wealth, no power. He dropped it all for us. Jesus is about to do the very same thing that the widow has done, to give all of himself on the cross for nothing less than love. Love exposes us and invites us into a new way, and when we accept it, it liberates us to live out the most radical generosity imaginable. That's why scripture says in order to find your life, you have to lose it. In order to gain, you have to give. Not some boomerang plan of tricking the system to make sure I get what I give out. Jesus invites us to give our lives away. To stand up and see our own heart's reflection and go, man, how much of my giving is really just for me? Instead, to say to the world, I'm here. Not for me, but for you. And I think the invitation for each of us today is to take a look at our, our own situation. And then to the farmer's carrot or the widow's mite to ask whether we are willing to add our lives. To sing the song of Jesus with all of our days, with all 167 hours in our communities. To love people with a radical, unconditional, unqualifiable, unexplainable sort of love because that's where the purest of joy is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for our community. Lord, each and every person that that graces this place, Lord, I pray that you would would illuminate where we are in these stories. Father, I know I would confess in my own life that far too little of what I give of my days, my time, finances, hours, whatever. Father, far too little of it is pure. Even on my best day, I'm I'm hoping to get something back out of it all. Lord, I expect that that's true for many in the room, and I expect that when we look at the story of the widow's might, we're just as often the wealthy dropping off our gifts to be seen as we are the poor giving our lives for no benefit. Lord, I pray that you would continue to shape us. You would shape the songs of our lives to look more and more and more like the widow. Lord, that we would be unconcerned with the status that we might gain in giving our lives away. We would be unconcerned about who might see it, what privilege it might afford us if someone finds out. Instead, Father, my prayer is that each and every one of us would find one small extra place to begin living out this generosity that you first lived out for us in Jesus. So, Father, thank you for the beauty of your word, the way that it ripples through our lives in concentric circles, and as we read it, it reads us. Father, find us deeper in it, This week, find us deeper in your life and your love and your song that we might sing it for this world to hear. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.